Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Okay, well, good morning and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul. This is uh, class number 37, I believe, and uh, happy to be here, of course. Happy Sunday morning to you or, or afternoon if you're, uh, if you're east of us, or evening if you're in uh, Europe or Africa or the Middle East, and then beyond that, everybody's asleep, I presume. I uh, want to remind you that this program is podcast to all players and directories, and wherever you get your podcasts, search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And uh, also on YouTube, the full program, the podcast is edited. Uh, Take out the meditation and the Q&A. But the full class, the video is posted on YouTube. Again, search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And uh, if you're interested in a free intake session from a private work, just go to michaelbenner.com. You'll see a red circle that'll give you access to my calendar, and you can schedule it absolutely free and uh, no obligation whatsoever. We'll see what we work with is anxiety disorders, but it's just amazing how many of our problems are consequences of not understanding ourselves. And all of that is a result of anxiety and stress and tension. So To work with anxiety disorders, it's not really a panacea. It's not like every uh, problem that you could have mentally and emotionally is a function of anxiety. But uh, stress, fear, anxiety, from mild apprehension and and nervousness all the way out to panic and terror, uh, phobias, uh, OCD, PTSD, uh, it's a full range of... uh, dysfunctions that accrue when uh, we're stressed out. So part of what this class is about, Wisdom of the Soul, is learning to explore what sometimes I call the extraordinary power of tranquility. Peace, as I'm sure each of you knows, is much more than the absence of conflict or, or the absence of violence. It's a level of awareness. And the more peaceful we are, the more aware we become. It's like waking up and seeing what you hadn't seen before. And then in terms of mindfulness, being aware that you are that awareness, noticing what you notice. Uh, It's one thing to become more aware. It's another to realize that you are awareness. And that stepping stone is to be aware that you're aware. So it's more than a word game. It's it's a wonderful enigma to consider that you are 
much more than the separated individual living in this body. Today we're going to talk about mysticism and what I've described in the newsletter in the title of today's class as the wisdom traditions of the world. And I have a screen share that I'll do after the meditation. And we'll go through some of the mystical traditions, some of which are affiliated with religions, and many are not. They're, well, probably better said, philosophies. Uh, but they emphasize personal experience. That's the primary difference between mysticism and organized religion, is the emphasis on the experience of ecstasy, the wonderful, soaring, loving feeling of harmony and union that comes from deep and profound peace, a state of expanded awareness, as I said, or sometimes called higher consciousness. Let's begin with our opening meditation, and then we'll go to that and talk about the wisdom traditions of the world, from sea to shining sea, see what we can learn. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, sit up in your chair or uh, on your bed if you're in a yoga position, on a meditation pillow, or in a straight back chair, wherever you happen to be. I want you to think of yourself as balanced and centered. So sit up, put your shoulders back, maybe raise your chin just a little bit, and uh, close your eyes. And begin by... Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that. All right. Uh, what is mysticism? And what are the wisdom traditions of the world? Uh, I put together a little handout for us that I'm going to screen share. And we'll go through slowly. I think you'll find this helpful. I put this together because... Uh, actually, I tend to do th these kinds of things a lot. I have numerous lists where I'm sort of defining my interests. Because this kind of stuff, you can find uh, documents, writing, essays, uh, letters, material on each of these uh, fields, each of these mystical, oh, let's call them schools, mystery schools. But I think the challenge is to take a step back and foster a, a kind of an overview that's what I'd like to do with this handout today. So uh, let's start at the top here. I'll just read this introductory part about the impact of uh, Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings. Uh, these books cause people to ask, are there really wizards and are there really wizard schools? And yes, there are wizards, hierophants, and shamans. They're mystics. That's what a mystic is. He or she is, again, take your pick. Wizard, hierophant, shaman, mystic, esotericist. Pretty much covers it. All students of consciousness, like Merlin from the Arthurian legends, Gandalf and Dumbledore, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda, just some of the better-known mythological 
masters of the ageless wisdom. And then this first paragraph below the header, here's the list I want to go over with you. Freemasonry, heard of the Masons, the Illuminati, <laughs> all these service clubs that have spun off of Freemasonry, like uh, the Shriners, right? What are they about with those little fezzes and the, uh, oh, the Optimists and the Sore Optimists and the Odd Fellows and the Rebecca Lodge and uh, oh, there's so many of them. But Freemasonry, <laughs> that's one of the original, well, more than a service club, it's a mystery school, school of esoteric wisdom. And uh, again, I'm not going to dwell long on each of these. I just want to list them. My mother was raised Catholic in a very Catholic family. So she raised her kids, me and my brother and sister, to be Catholic. And I remember one day we were, my mother and I, walking to the library in our little hometown in southwest Michigan. And we had to walk by a lodge, a Freemason lodge. And I noticed, even though I was only eight or ten years old, that her step quickened. And she sort of held herself a little more tightly as she hurried by this Masonic lodge. And uh, it's because the fear of God was put, <laughs> put into her by her Catholic training that the Freemasons are evil somehow. And uh, they are esoteric, and it's not an organized religion, but there is a, a very sophisticated philosophy that goes with Freemasonry. In many ways, it's a kind of a front or a public uh, face for Rosicrucianism. And which is second on our list here, and this is the order of the Roly, of the uh, <laughs> uh, the Holy Cross, the Rosy Cross, and their symbol includes. They have many, many symbols, but one is the cross with a rose right in the center of it, at the intersection of the horizontal and vertical, and that's a rich symbol that uh, perhaps we'll talk about in depth at some time. Right now, I just want to skate over this. So these are strong Judeo-Christian esoteric approaches to spiritual, quasi-religious, philosophical ideas, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, esoteric philosophy in general. Kabbalah, I'm sure you know, is the mysticism of the Jewish religion. And I say that like there's one Jewish religion. Um, which is not true. Obviously, all religions vary from temple to temple, parish to parish. But Kabbalah, there's Jewish Kabbalah from several thousand years ago, uh, going back arguably to the time of Moses even. But there's also a more universal Kabbalah that comes out of Europe in the Renaissance era. So if you wonder at that, and the three or four different spellings of Kabbalah is always confusing. Neoplatonism is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure Plato would recognize Neoplatonism, 
But it's very mystical, the focus, again, very much on personal experience. It's important to read books and study the scripture and the literature. Secondly, it's very important that we are logical and, and reasonable and encourage debate and disagreement as a, as a way of understanding. But in addition to reading the literature and learning to be a critical thinker, we have to honor personal experience. And again, that's one of the primary threads in all of these mystical traditions. Um, hermetic philosophy, hermetic alchemy, hermeticism. This is ancient uh, Egyptian uh, philosophy. And alchemy, again, was a favorite subject of Newton. He studied alchemy. And uh, John Dee in the uh, literature of England and consultants to the crown, there were alchemists like John Dee and later Newton. So it's not just some silly... Chemistry did not eliminate alchemy the way many would say astronomy eliminated astrology, right? Like many astronomers would mock astrology, saying, well, that's what we used to think about the stars. We now have telescopes and rocket ships, and we know better. So astrology has been supplanted by astronomy. Well, chemistry did not really replace alchemy. They're allied, but quite different. And alchemy continues to exist, deep and profound science and philosophy. Gnosticism. A Gnostic is one who knows. It's a, it's a Greek word for knowledge. So who were the Gnostics and what did they know? Probably easiest just to say that the Gnostics were groups of Jewish mystics and early Christian mystics, really. They uh, come from a time between Christ walking on earth and the first Christian church, the Catholic church, being formed 400 years later. During that interim period, there were Jews that saw what later became Christianity as just another branch of Judaism, but one that was very progressive, one that saw Christ Jesus as a mystic who really believed him when he said, these things I do you can do, and more, that we're all sons of God and daughters, or all children of the Most High. So, of course, they felt in, they, they fell into disfavor when uh, Constantine and his uh, Catholic bishops uh, organized the uh, Catholic Church in the 5th century in Nicaea. But Gnostics are still around, and uh, very vital, and, of course, in the late 1940s, there were the so-called Gnostic Gospels, or the Nag Hammadi Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes they're referred to. They're the Nag Hammadi Gospels, which are Gnostic Gospels. They're part of the Apocrypha that Constantine had banished and burned and uh, later got found, later, I mean like 2,000 years later, in the 1940s, they were found in clay jars, uh, often fragments. And uh, 
the boys that found these Gnostic Gospels were, they didn't know what they had. And so they were burning them as uh, fuel for their fire. Imagine that. And fortunately, somebody who knew their significance stopped that. But most of what survives are just little shreds, little tiny pieces of paper that have been cobbled together by scientists and studied ever since. That's part of the Apocrypha. All the material that Constantine and his bishops left out of the Bible, so to speak. Shamanism, you recognize shamanism. That's in every culture and every society from time out of mind. These are the medicine men and women, uh, the witch doctors, people who are very pantheistic. They uh, celebrate the earth sciences. They're healers. And again, saw the divine in everything. Saw the world is sacred. The ocean is sacred. The mountains are sacred. The sky, the clouds, everything is sacred. The animals. And everything has a spirit. Perennialism is an interesting term that I really like. I relate to perennialism. Perennialism is a reference to the perennial philosophy, sometimes called the ageless wisdom, sometimes called ancient wisdom, sometimes called prisca theologia, which is uh, Latin for the first theology, the first religious teachings. But what perennialism suggests is more than old or pre-religious, but you know what a perennial flower is, right? It persists. It, it continues on. Uh, you don't have to replant every year. It's a perennial. It just keeps popping up on its own. And so perennial philosophy is this all-encompassing, absolutely inclusive embrace of all religion and all philosophy from a very progressive, very liberal point of view. Again, emphasizing, as all these wisdom traditions do, personal experience. Not to the exclusion of reading scripture or being a critical thinker, being logical, but also not being limited to the dogma, the rules, the rituals, and the ceremonies of organized religion, which is based on authoritarianism. And this is the one right way to look at it, which is why there's every religion has thousands of sects within it. Nobody agrees. <laughs> and that's a good thing, except for those who are so entrenched in their particular belief system they, that they think any variation is, uh, is wrong. There have been attempts to bring perennialism forward, the World Parliament of Religions. Um, there, there have been other efforts to celebrate the harmony and the unity of everyone who seeks to understand their source or their own nature beyond the physical being, the energy that illumines and animates us. I like that term, perennialism, the perennial... I guess I, I'm comfortable calling myself a, a perennialist. It's sort of like, hey, this is all good. But you got to cherry pick because we're humans. We get confused. And we, again, reality is a personal experience. So if you're going to explore the nature of wisdom, of insight and understanding, 
then you're going to have to look at all of these. And again, that to me is the whole idea of what a liberal arts education is. You're not looking for the truth in one right way such that everything else is wrong. You're looking for truth where it, where it reinforces. It's like the, the, the repeatable experiment in empiricism, where if I can get the same results from repeating the scientific method, that's what it's called, right? If I can get the same results or similar results from repeating an experiment, that helps me to validate it. We can do that with spirituality, with mysticism. We can meditate every day and compare and contrast the experiences that we have. So enough of this one right way nonsense. Sufism, uh, the, the Sufis are the mystics of Islam. These are the liberal, progressive Muslims, if you will. Very rich tradition and quite closely related to Neoplatonism and a book called The Enneads that's uh, come from the old Greek mystery, mystery schools out of uh, Alexandria. Uh, if you think of the whirling dervish, if you've ever seen the the Middle Eastern dancers, the whirling dervishes, they're Sufis. Yoga, of course. Uh, the Yoga Sutras are attributed to a fellow named Patanjali or Patanjali. Not sure which pronunciation is correct, but he put them together. Again, no one really knows. 3,000 years ago. 3,500 years ago, something on that order. And they come out of Vedic philosophy, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and again, really predate. Yoga is a practice that is not only spiritual, but, you know, a physical practice, Hatha yoga in particular, the the asanas, the stretching, the stimulation of the endocrine glands, all of this as preparation for meditation. It's sort of odd that uh, yoga in the West, in this day and age, is seen pretty much as just exercises. And uh, often people say, yeah, I do yoga, I go to yoga, or hot yoga, <laughs> you know, cardio yoga, but I don't meditate. Well, yoga means union. The word yoga means union, and that's why you meditate so that you can connect with your source and with all things, since the source is in all things, and all things are in the source. So why would you go through all the preparation leading up to meditation and then skip the meditation? Well, because we've appropriated it from a culture that understood it. And... Uh, it's a huge field. There are stems of yoga, schools of yoga, different types of yoga. Not an expert at it, but it certainly is mystical in its nature and should be included in this list. Buddhism, I must, I must admit that there is some um, legitimate disagreement about whether Buddhism could be correctly called mystical. People debate whether Buddhism is a religion or a philosophy, the fact that Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, in other words, Gautama Siddhartha Buddha, there are 
ostensibly, according to Buddhism, millions and millions of Buddhas in this universe. Usually when you talk about Buddha, it's Shakyamuni Buddha, which is this individual that lived 2,500 years ago, and the stories of his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, his discovery of the middle way. But he never talked about God. He would refuse. People would ask him about God, and he wouldn't talk about it. Basically, his responses were not unlike those of Jesus Christ when he was asked, why do you teach in parables? Why all the metaphor? And Jesus said, because if I told you straight out, you wouldn't understand me, and I don't really have the words because this language we speak, you haven't figured them out. You haven't seen a need for the words. I don't have the words. I have to teach in parables. And then along come fundamentalist Christians 2,000 years later who take the Bible literally, and they're proud to tell you they take it literally. I guess every part except for that section in Matthew where Christ said, I have to teach in metaphor. <laughs> All right? So you reap what you sow. What does that mean? So too with Buddhism, he never talks about God. It's not really a religion at all, but it is mystical in that the emphasis is on personal awareness and enlightenment. So that has to be included, I think, in the list of the world wisdom tradition. Certainly, wisdom is a term that's used a lot in Buddhism. Taoism also, this is... Uh, Taoism comes out of the teachings of Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, in China. Again, almost the same time as Buddha and uh, the Greek philosophers, Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. All of this is coming down, uh, Lao Tzu and Buddha, at about the same time, roughly 400, 500 years before Christ. So, Christ knew about all of these mystical traditions, obviously. Taoism is very similar to Buddhism. And then theosophy and anthroposophy, we got to throw these in here, and I think this is fascinating, uh, to me anyway. It sort of comes full circle. It's back to Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism now. Theosophists and anthroposophists how can I tell you about theosophy? Theosophy has a capital T theosophy and a small t theosophy. The small t theosophy is a mystical tradition that goes back to the Rhineland mystics of uh, Europe in the 13th and 14th century. Small t theosophy is hundreds of years old. And again, it's an esoteric look at Christianity, at uh, Catholicism, since this was before the Reformation, before the Protestants said, we want Bibles, we want to read, we want to figure this stuff out, and the Catholic Church is way too corrupt, selling indulgences, uh, allowing you a way to buy uh, passage into heaven, Shortcut purgatory with indulgences, little prayers. When I was a kid in the Catholic Church, we had we didn't have Bibles. We had missals, which were books of the church's teachings. And in there were these little phrases that you could say, like little mini prayers. 
And after each one, it would actually say how many days credit you get for saying this prayer. Each time you say this prayer, you get 355 days. You say this prayer, you get 78 days off your sentence in purgatory, you know, which is sort of the waiting room. Like, um, you're not, you're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not bad enough to go to hell. So you have to go to purgatory and, um, do whatever you do in purgatory. They were (laughs) never that clear about it. But even at six, seven, eight years old, I thought, this is crazy. I can sit here and that somebody's got a big book and that I can earn credits like merit badges. You know, I was in Cub Scouts at the time. It's like earning merit badges to shorten my sentence in purgatory before I trundle off to uh, heavenly bliss. Well, those were being sold by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, and uh, that was one of the reasons that the Protestants, the Protestants, broke off with the Reformation, Martin Luther and all of that. There's also a capital T Theosophy, which is a group founded in the mid-1800s by a Russian mystic named Blavatsky, Helena or Helena Petrova Blavatsky, HPB. A lot of mystics like to use initials when they write. So she's HPB or HP Blavatsky. And she has several important books from the 19th century that she wrote, The Secret Doctrine, Isis Unveiled. But man, I'll tell you, this is really heavy, pithy, deeply esoteric, and not very well edited, I must say. Uh, There have been some official attempts by the Theosophical Organization to come up with edited versions of the Secret Doctrine and ISIS Unveiled, because Blavatsky would often go off on these rants and get sidetracked. Following on Blavatsky's work were other theosophists that were part of this group that was organized See, Ledbetter, what was his name? I think it was Hugh Ledbetter, Annie Bessant, or Bessant, B-E-S-A-N-T. She wrote a lot of uh, material. These folks found Krishnamurti as a boy and educated him in England, believing that he was a messiah. And he was trained to come forward as a savior, for the world, based largely on Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. But the thing about Theosophists, although it's originally Christian mysticism, is the capital T Theosophy of Blavatsky embraced yoga and the mystical traditions within Hinduism and Buddhism to a large degree and, and Taoism, since it's so closely related. So... Blavatsky's school of theosophy was really esoteric and eclectic. And uh, the funny story about Krishnamurti, who spent most of his adult life in Ojai, California, uh, and there's still Meditation Mount and a fabulous uh, bookstore called Cretona, and uh, Ojai is a very trippy place to visit. 
largely because of the influence of these mystical traditions like theosophy. Uh, Krishnamurti said, oh, hi, California always reminded him of his home in India. But when it came time for his big coming out in the 60s, I think it was, he he fooled everybody. He was all ready to do this big announcement that he was the Maitreya, he was the savior, he was Christ born again, come to save the world. And uh, on opening night, he says, sorry, I'm not any of those things. I'm just a guy, and uh, I can't do that. Well, theosophy then split into two schools, one headquartered in uh, Pasadena, California, another one in Wheaton, Illinois. They also have uh, publishing houses in India. And it's a big organization, and again, very, very eclectic. Capital T, Theosophy. I should also mention Alice Bailey's remarkable work. Alice Bailey is a theosophist in the Blavatsky tradition. And uh, Anthroposophy, that's Rudolf Steiner. And it's not super popular, but they do have their own schools. They do certify teachers. It's sort of like... uh, Montessori with a strong spiritual bent. Uh, Anthroposophy includes a lot of uh, astrology, uh, even numerology, sacred geometry. Uh, The Steiner schools, Rudolf Steiner is the primary organizer of the anthroposophists. And then to complete the paragraph this is nestled into, these are just some of the schools that teach the greater mysteries to their most worthy students. Increasingly, Americans are leaving their churches, their temples and mosques, to find spiritual meaning and fulfillment in the world's ancient wisdom traditions. And uh, I think we're up to now, the last poll I saw was right around 40% of American adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. If you've been a churchgoer, you've seen the church's dwindling. Attendance is what I'm trying to say. The attendance is diminishing in these organized churches, and they're not sure what to do about it. Uh, Some of the churches are allowing women to be priests. Uh, Gay people can be priests and ministers now in many of the churches. Even the Baptist church right now is changing. Some of these very strict, ultra-conservative churches are being forced to modernize just to attract people who have good hearts and they want to be good Christians or spiritually oriented people, but the shoe just doesn't fit these ancient medieval teachings They just don't work for people. They don't answer the questions that they need answering. And so the idea that you have to take this set of books called the Holy Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the so-called New Testament, cobbled together from the Apocrypha by Constantine, that that stuff has to be taken literally is why People increasingly are rejecting religion in favor of spirituality. Why? Because they still feel the longing in their heart. They still feel a connection to everything. And 
again, in religious traditions, that longing is described as the love of God and God's love for each of us. But in the mystical traditions, the longing that we feel in the heart is an antidote to the illusion of separation. It's a sense of wholeness, of oneness, that we're connected not only to some personified uh, being or character called God who lives on a cloud very far away, viewing his creation at a distance to the idea of everything is sacred. Everything exists in the body of God, so to speak, that the material universe is the body of God, that that God didn't create the universe. God is the universe. (laughs) And again, if we're talking about mysticism and spiritual traditions, that's a major belief system, major alternative. And next week we'll pick this up. We'll talk a little more about pantheism, panentheism, which we touched on a few weeks ago, panpsychism, I bet that's a new word for most of you. What is panpsychism? And how is monism different from monotheism? These are important to your study. You have to have the, this is really foundational. This is the basics. And again, I'm never going to tell you the one right way to look at any of this. The whole idea is to blow all of this open and study all religions and all philosophies, emphasizing Scripture. You can't just read the Bible. You've got to read the Apocrypha, the Gnostic Gospels. You've got to read the Quran. What do you mean you haven't read the Quran? How could you know anything? about Islam if you haven't read the Quran. you got to read the Gita, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, the, the uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And you say, well, I don't have time to do all that. <laughs> I don't have time to do all of that. Well, that's why a lot of these mystery schools came forward. They said, well, we'll cobble together the course. And indeed, to some extent, that's what we're doing here on Sundays. <laughs>